This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Kyogen. Kyogen is the leading global provider of sample-to-insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials. Assay technologies make these biomolecules visible and ready for analysis. Bioinformatics software and knowledge bases interpret data to report relevant, actionable insights. Automation solutions tie these together in seamless and cost-effective molecular testing workflows. Kyogen provides these workflows to more than 500,000 customers around the world in molecular diagnostics, human healthcare, applied testing, forensics, veterinary testing, and food safety, pharma, pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, and academia, life sciences research. Today's presentation is titled, Decoding Cancer, Practical Advice for Working with Cellular Heterogeneity and is being presented by Dr. Anya Ronsky from Tufts University. Breast cancer heterogeneity is arguably one of the biggest hurdles in effectively treating breast cancer. During her postdoc, Anya Ronsky aims to improve our understanding of how different breast cancers arise. Anya studies the genetic influences that may affect tumor phenotype and heterogeneity. She's also a leader within the postdoctoral community, having served as president of Tufts Postdoctoral Association and co-founded the Boston Postdoctoral Association Careers Group. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Anya at the end. The recording of this webinar will be available at bit.ly slash decoding cancer webinar, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Anya, for the presentation. Thanks, Amanda, and I just want to thank um, both Bitesize Bio and Kaijun for allowing me to talk a little bit about heterogeneity and cancer and how you can use some tools to really try and get at this issue. So in the US, um, the American Cancer Society has predicted that there's approximately three new cases and one death every single minute. So obviously the cancer burden around the world is immense. And there's a lot of active research at the moment in trying to identify how these cancers come about. And so in this webinar, I'm hoping to cover a few of these topics, including a little bit about tumor biology and heterogeneity, some things to consider when studying these tumor models, and workflows that will help you process the end-stage tumors that you get, some important considerations for doing this, as well as how to analyze the results that you get using some pathway analysis tools. So heterogeneity in tumors can cause an incredible issue when it comes to diagnosis and treatment. Now there's really two different types of heterogeneity that you can see in different types of tumors. You can get intratumor heterogeneity in which you can have the same tumor type, for example, in breast cancer, but in each different patient you can get a different tumor that will respond differently to, uh, to treatments as well as have a different um, basis for diagnosis. 
And you can also have an added layer of complexity, which is the intratumor heterogeneity. And this is where you can have, within the one single tumor, different clones which may be more or less dominant. And this causes a huge issue for treatment because you could have a great drug that can kill all of clone one and two. However, there could be a third clone which does not get killed at all by the treatment and can cause reoccurrence of disease later on. And this is something that we really have to consider when we're working with tumor models and whether or not they really model this heterogeneity. And this is again seen um, by the Cancer Genome Project, which um, when they sequenced all of the different tumors that they were researching, they found that for the majority of tumors, they had a vast array of genetic mutations. Um, and so this really reflects this intratumoral heterogeneity that these tumors have. And when, as researchers, we really want to ensure that the types of cancers that we're studying can reflect this heterogeneity because whatever we find, obviously, in our mouse models or in our tumor models, we want to be able to relate that back to the clinical workflow that real patients are undergoing. And again, um, when researchers take out tumors, this, for example, is a glioblastoma from the brain, they find that it's not only histological nodes, as I showed previously, that can differ, but you can also have genetic nodes which have different um, driver mutations that are causing that particular node to be, become prevalent and really controlling what area it, it's um, it's taking up and, and how it responds to treatment. And this has been shown in multiple different tumor types. And so, for example, if you're using clinical patient samples, which is obviously fantastic and a very great resource that we get um, due to the um, kindness of the patients, uh, you really need to ask how are you capturing that tumor? Are you really getting the entirety of the genetic um, sort of landscape and history of the tumor, or are you taking a little section that you may be excluding lots of other different genetic components of that tumor? So do you want to do laser capture microdissection, for example, which you can very finely delineate what area of the tumor you're taking, or do you want to do you take the entire tumor and, and do a whole tumor extract, which sometimes isn't possible because obviously the tumor has to be used for multiple different things, especially clinically. So that's just something to consider, um, especially when you're using clinical patient samples. And obviously, we don't always have access to these patient samples. So there's a lot of other tumor models that we can use to study um, tumors in, in the different um, organisms. And so well, obviously, one of the most common is using mouse models or using um, Drosophila or cell culture models. But a lot of these may not necessarily recapitulate um, the human disease. So that's just something that you really have to take in mind as a caveat of using other models rather than a clinical um, model, which obviously is not always um, possible. So once you have a model, for example, um, using a mouse model, how can you detect the tumors? This is something really important that you need to consider when you're doing, um, for example, these are tumor experiments. So here is an experiment where um, I injected some cancer cells into the mammary fat pads of mice, and these cells were luciferized. So I could use live animal cell in it, 
live animal imaging to be able to track where the luciferin signal was coming from. And obviously, it was coming from the tumor because that's where the luciferin cells were. And you can see here, there's two control mice on the left and then three tumor mice on the right. You can see these big, bright um, spots of, of detection. And this is actually the tumor that's growing. So in the mammary gland model, for example, in this breast cancer model, we really didn't need the luciferin because we could feel the, the actual tumor arising. However, if you're studying, for example, a brain tumor, you can't necessarily feel the tumor coming up in the brain. So it may be useful to have a, a detection model like this and luciferase and this live cell, live animal imaging is very useful for this because you can keep the animal alive and just monitor them over time. Um, in addition, it may be useful to put in a fluorescent reporter, which doesn't work quite so well with live animal imaging like this, but this bottom panel is showing um, a tumor that we actually took out of these mice that had a, one of the genetic markers was linked to GFP. And so we could use just um, fluorescence imaging to see where the GFP was um, brightest within this tumor. So you can see that even though this tumor was created by something that was driven with GFP, there is some nodes that are a little darker than others, um, suggesting that there is heterogeneity within this tumor, even though it was created by this one genetic marker. In this case, we were using KRAS, which is a very strong um, oncogenic driver, which is found in breast cancer as well. So once you have the tumors, and well, however you get them from, you really have to decide what within those tumors you want to look at, because there's several different approaches that you have to use to deal with that tissue, depending on what you want to do with it. So for example, if you want to do proteomic analysis um, and look at things and use things like Western blotting or mass spec, um, if you want to do histological analysis um, and do look at pathology using either like H&E stain or some sort of immunohistochemistry, um, you really want to process that tissue using FFPE or some sort of fixative, whether it's an OCT or in the formaldehyde-based um, tissue processing. Now, um, if you do use FFPE for this, uh, you can't necessarily, you can't very easily use this for use looking at genomic analysis because FFPE tends to degrade a lot of nucleic acids, which is why it's very difficult to do next generation sequencing on archived patient samples because a lot of them are just fixed within using FFPE. Now, you can also you you can also take the dissociated cells from the tumor and look at them using flow cytometry or perhaps create an immortalized line or try and use the primary cells from that tumor for further study. Or you can extract the DNA out of them and use it for looking at um, exome sequencing or looking at um, insertions, deletions, or single nu nucleotide variants or SNPs, or look at the methylation status of the genome. And you could also look at the RNA and do some expression analysis. So whether or not you use RNA-seq or microarrays or real-time PCR or um, northern blotting even, or a micro microfluidics-based platform that will also let you do expression analysis. For all of these four bottom um, cells, DNA, RNA, and proteomic analysis, it's really important that your sample quality is very high. And so my recommendation for any of these pathways is to snap freeze the sample on either dry ice 
or if you're very concerned about um, having the sample freeze very quickly, one nice trick that you can do is you put dry ice into a container, or insulated container, and you pour some methanol over it. And what will happen is you will cause the methanol to be super chilled, and you will have a very, very cold method of very quickly um, cooling down the sample and freezing, snap freezing it. And this what happen this enables you to freeze the sample about twice as quick as dry ice from my sort of non-conventional testing methods. So what I want to talk about is the workflow for DNA and RNA, and this is what I'm going to focus on. So there's a few questions that you need to ask yourself when you're taking samples for this, because this is one of the most common things that most people do when looking at a tumor and working out what's happening on a molecular level. So the workflow for this is you have your tumor tissue, you then want to extract your RNA and your DNA, and then you really want to assess the quality, and I'll come back to why this is important. And then you want, you may need to prep the sample in a way, in some way. You obviously then want to analyze it using whatever method that you're, that you want to use. And then you have to analyze the data that came out of that experiment. And now all of these steps are obviously critical for the next one. And so I want to go through a few little points that you want to, may want to consider when it comes to this workflow. So for the RNA or DNA extraction, there's a few questions you want to ask yourself. So the first one is, well, what do you really want to look for in that sample? Obviously in RNA, you have the choice of taking the whole coding mRNAs, non-coding RNAs, microRNAs, which, um, and that will affect the kind of method that you'll use to extract the RNA or DNA, obviously the RNA. DNA is a little simpler because most genomic DNA, it's very easy to get out. Um, and so there's, there's very good uh, methods that are pretty consistent to, to extract DNA. The other question um, that is important is really considering how many samples you're processing because some of these extraction methods are easier to do with smaller numbers of samples versus larger number of samples. So for example, using a or these organic extractions such as triazole or chiazole, um, it's, this is a great way of extracting RNA because you can get all RNAs, so microRNAs, non-coding RNAs, and um, coding mRNAs. However, it can be very manually intensive because it's not column-based, um, and it can be difficult to do more than 12 or so samples at a time because there is a time component where you don't want to keep one step from one sample longer than the other. And so because this is a more uh, technically strenuous technique, it is a little easier to introduce contaminants into your RNA once you've isolated it through the phenol extraction method. So an easier way that you can do this is the spin-based columns. So they're a little bit easier to use. They work based on using a silica membrane to um, trap the RNA, which will then get eluded um, during the last step. And this is a great method to use if you use, have large samples because one, you can automate it and even if you don't have the ability to automate, say you don't have the robotics to be able to do this, it's relatively easy to do this in using large samples. However, there's obviously caveats to this benefit in that if you use too much RNA um, or material, you can clog the column and reduce the output that you get and this is probably one of the most common things that people do is they don't realize there's upper limits as to what the column can capture and 
completely um, ruin their yield because they put in too much material. Um, and the other thing to consider is some of these columns are actually designed to restrict specific uh, size of RNAs. So some of these columns can don't actually capture these smaller microRNAs. So you really have to check what kit you have and what columns you have and to actually make sure that they are going to capture the kinds of RNA species that you want to study. And the other um, thing to consider is that you can actually use a combination of these methods. It may be a little bit more expensive because obviously you need both reagents, but um, for some techniques, I found that it's easier to undergo a triazole extraction, for example, and then clean it up using a spin column. And this increases my yield because I'm able to capture more in the triazole, lose a little bit in the spin columns, but also increase my purity at that point, as long as I haven't degraded my RNA at that point. So that's another thing to consider. And then the lastly is how much material do you really need? Of the, a lot of um, this analysis, for example, for RNA-seq, they really recommend you... We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bitesize Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. ...have at least a microgram of material. It really depends on what you're looking at and what um, library prep and kits you're using. But um, you really have to consider how much you can realistically get as well. If you're using a very small tumor sample, um, it, it may not be feasible to get a microgram. And so you then have to sort of consider other ways of uh, using that sample, either using other techniques that don't require quite so much, or using a preamplification kit that can amplify your starting material that can then give you more for downstream. Um, analysis. So I want to come back to this idea of the quality of nucleic acid. So this is extremely critical and I mean I think it's a mantra of researchers everywhere and it's very important that if you put in a bad, pro a bad starting material you're going to get a bad product. And so it is extremely important to make sure that you snap freeze your samples on dry ice or using that methanol dry ice method I was talking about um, and you want to utilize that your aseptic technique as best as you can to avoid DNAs or RNAs when you're de uh, to avoid the de degradation of your samples um, and for example if you're always PCR amplifying the same thing, you may want to consider doing it in a special PCR hood or in a TC hood to try and avoid constant contamination of the same PCR amplicons that you're getting over and over again. Um, obviously, you want to store your samples correctly, so when you're using them, try obviously store them on ice, and store your RNA um, for long-term storage at minus 80 and DNA at minus 20. And if you're very concerned about your samples, say you're extracting samples from an incredibly high RNAs environment, if you have a lot of stromal components, this may contribute to it, a lot of proteases, um, try and use a stabilizing agent or buffer, which can help reduce uh, the risk of degradation from the things that are within your sample. So the other um, aspect of this quality control is that you want to ensure that you know how much RNA you have or DNA and that how, how good quality it is. Um, and this is very important for your downstream applications because, for example, for RNA-seq, this is a mix of almost an absolute and a relative measure because you're, you're looking at how many reads per 
transcript you're, you're looking at. And so if you put in double the amount of one sample than the other, you're, you're going to skew your results. And so it's very important to know that you're putting in the same amount of each sample. So a lot of people are moving away from the nanodrop to quantify this, these sort of high-end experiments, especially for RNA-seq, and that is because it's not specific. Um, and it's really looking at the absorbance range that falls within what nucleic acids should be, but it can capture a lot of other things as well. Um, whereas if you're using um, some of the, the fluorescence dye-based quantification such as the bioanalyzer, the qubit or the fragment analyzer, these are more specific towards actually capturing your DNA or RNA. And these will also give you um, a measure of how good quality your RNA or DNA is using a RIN score or an integrity value of some sort. Um, and a lot of genomics cores, if you're using them to submit your sequencing samples, will actually demand a good quality RIN score. And most of them say anything over seven out of 10 um, is, is acceptable, but obviously the higher the better. And obviously the score can change depending on what platform you're using. Um, so just have a look at what the scores actually mean um, before, before looking at your data. So once you get to your sample prep, you know what you want to do the best thing to do is to talk to the experts. So if you're sending your RNA-seq samples to a genomics core, ask them what they would want, what kind of library prep they recommend for that specific machine, because they know best. They run this all the time. Um, you also want to consider how many samples you're going to try and prep for your, to make libraries from. So for RNA-seq, it's very common to have to do this library prep to put on the barcodes and, and everything else to be able to do the RNA sequencing. And so you want to consider how many samples you're actually doing this. Some of the protocols, um, the ones that I've done, for example, are two days long and require using 96 swell plates, and you use probably about 15 to 20 boxes of tips. Um, and so being able to have that scalability, um, if you're using, say, if you're doing 20, I, I was doing 20 samples, for example, um, and so having to, being able to use a multi-channel pipette was uh, very useful in this, um, but if you're doing 50 samples, you're going to, that's going to increase exponentially, and it becomes harder and harder to add more samples on. So you really want to um, consider how many samples you're using, the kind of uh, library prep kits you're using. Is it uh, suitable for the number of samples and the scalability that you want. Um, I talked a little bit about the concentration um, of the input that you're adding, so the RNA. Um, the, for each kit, there will be a lim upper and a lower limit as to how much RNA concentration they want, as well as the total amount of RNA. Um, and sometimes you, you, there's, there's nothing you can do if you have a low concentration. You may just have to go with that. But there is that option, as I was saying, of pre-amplifying uh, your RNA so that you can increase what you can use it for. There is a few caveats with using pre-amplification, um, and it's out of the scope of this webinar. but um, it can be supremely useful, especially when using patient samples, where you have very, very small amounts of your sample material. You can extend the use of that um, to many other studies. And then lastly, what, you, what are you really trying to identify? With RNA-seq, um, one of the biggest issues is your ribosomal RNA um, depletion, and that's one of the biggest um, 
issues that you have in that you have too much ribosomal RNA and it's not depleted properly. So I think, um, in my opinion, this is one of the most important aspects of your sample prep that you should consider because if you have 90% ribosomal RNA, that means your sample is only coming through 10% of the time and you're reading 90% of things that you really don't need in your RNA-seq uh, experiments. So uh, the depth of sequencing is going to, so how how many times you want their genome or the sample to be read, if it's 10 times, is it 50 times? And this will really depend on if you're looking at rare expression or very low expression versus highly expressed genes. And then your read length can help you, longer read lengths can help you identify splice variants or non-coding RNAs because it will help align the genome better. Um, but it could also increase the, the cost as well as the time that this reaction can take as well as the depth of sequencing. So one question that I would like to pose to all of you is, do you really need to sequence and do RNA sequencing? Um, a lot of people have moved away from a lot of these PCR-based assays, but I still think that they are incredibly useful for assessing things in high throughput. There are tons of plate-based real-time PCR assays based on different pathways, different disease areas. You can even customize um, plates and you can easily load the plates yourself, run them in a 96-well PCR machine and have your data pretty quickly. Um, you can also do the same for single nucleotide variants and obviously genotyping SNPs. And so um, the pros of using a PCR-based array is that you have a lot less work, you have less library prep, you just need to do the cDNA synthesis using reverse transcriptase and then set up your PCR reaction. A lot of the PCR array plates actually come with preloaded primers. This is how they're set up. So all you have to do is put in your master mix with your cDNA and it's good to go. Um, you can really ask, so you can get focused answers. So if you're looking, for example, is the Wnt pathway um, overexpressed in my samples. You will be able to tell that because you're looking at every single Wnt within your species. Um, and so there's not, no longer a need to do very intensive bioinformatics. And a lot of the different companies that offer the different arrays will have dedicated analysis programs built into their products. And there's some really great ones out there. Um, another, uh, I think, good thing about this is that it doesn't generate this amount, amount of data, and I'll show you how, what I mean about this. It can often be very difficult to get into the biological significance of what you're looking at because you're inundated by all of these different changes and you, you really don't know where to start. And so obviously there's a few negatives to not sequencing your samples and using PCR-based arrays. But And so I think one of the biggest is that you may miss some of these big changes that you may not include in your PCR array. However, one thing that I want to point out that I haven't got on this slide is the time factor. If you use a PCR-based array from ordering it to running the experiment and analyzing the data, it may take you a week or two, depending on how quickly you get the array, because you can run these arrays within a day and analyze the data within an hour or two. However, for sequencing experiments, you could send your samples to your core it may take them two to three weeks for them to get a spot for them to add your sample onto the machine, another week or so for it to run, and then it could take months to get the analysis done, maybe a few days if you know what you're doing, 
if you don't, it could take a while for them to be able to analyze the data because there's obviously a lot of work that needs to be done. So you're looking at a PCR-based array which could help you find out what you're looking for, respond to your reviewer comments, whatever it is, within a week versus your next-gen sequencing experiment which months later you still might not get your result. So that's another big thing to consider um, when you're deciding whether or not you need to sequence your sample or use a PCR-based array. So once you have your results, uh, what does this mean? So um, for RNA-seq data, you really want to ask if you have the core do your analysis for you, how has the data been normalized? In many cases, they use this FPKM value or a variant of it which is very similar called RPKM. And this boils down to looking at the fragments per kilobase of transcripts per million mapped reads. This sounds complicated, but what this, they're ultimately doing is looking at, well, if your gene is, say, 100 kilobases long, how many fragments were identified per 100 kilobases? So you're normalizing for the size of the gene, because obviously bigger genes are going to come up more quickly, more often, because of the way the sequencing reaction works. And so you're normalizing that to a per million mapped read. So this is one of the most common ways of expressing real-time PCR data, uh, RNA-seq data, sorry. The other thing that um, you want to ask is what, you are, what are you really trying to find? So you can do comparative analysis, which I will show you in a second, which is where you're really looking what is the change between sample A and sample B. And you can also look at variation between samples, which I'm not going to go into. And then lastly, one of the very common things to do is a pathway analysis. So you're really asking what's changing on a pathway or on a network level? How are my different changes integrated together? And this sort of came about about 10, 15 years ago and it's really boomed where there's a lot of different tools you can use and I'll go through a few of them um, as part of this presentation. So for comparative analysis, you're really looking at differential expression. So this is good if you're comparing one group to another. Um, so, for example, here I'm comparing one sample, which is one population of a tumor, to another, and it can still give you a lot of data. So here I have 316 differentially expressed genes um, that are statistically significant based on my RNA sequencing data. Um, and so the question is, well, what does this all mean? I can do what most people do, look down the list and find my favorite gene and say, yep, it's, it is what it is, and, and I thought it was going to do that, um, but I didn't have to do RNA-seq to be able to work that out. So um, one good option to do is this pathway analysis. So there's a few options, and these are just a few. There's a lot more out there, um, and I want to talk about ingenuity pathway analysis. So this is a paid um, analysis that is done online. There is a free trial that you can use, which I think is for two weeks. Um, but double check that. Um, but your institution may also have a subscription to it. So obviously look into that before you have to fork over any money. It can be quite expensive. And this software can find um, different pathways that are up or down regulated within your data set. And I'll show you how to use the product in a second. Um, the other one that is commonly used is the gene set enrichment analysis, which is offered by the Broad Institute. And this compares your gene profile to number of built-in annotated pathways that it hosts. 
Um, and the last anal uh, analysis tool and one that I will explain for you guys is David. So the database for annotation, visualization, and integrated discovery. And this uses very similar to GCR analysis. It identifies biological themes, go terms, and these functional gene groups. And that's from the NIH and is a free tool that's available to everybody. So for ingenuity pathway analysis, once you log in, this is the screen that you see. So on your right here, there is um, a little help section that will help you start off. So to upload a data set, you just have to hit this new button and all the way down the very bottom, is, it asks you to upload your data set and all of your data sets are stored here within this My Projects area. So once you upload your data set, here I've uploaded one um, from, you could use an Excel file, you can use a text file with just gene names that are differentially expressed. However, Ingenuity um, can give you the option to look at actual expression differences. So here, there's all of the gene names within this file. I can tell it that this is the gene ID. Um, if you're doing uh, gene expression arrays, you can tell it what expression array you use, and it will pull out the identifiers and match them up with the genes that you want that you're looking at so you don't have to do that step of working out what the the IDs relate to which genes it will do that for you and then here you tell it where the two expression values are so in this case this is my one expression this is the other and you can tell it what the actual expression is looking at is it a ratio is it a log change etc so once you've input that, it will go through and it will try and map all of the different IDs that you have. So it, for every gene symbol, it will try and line it up with the gene that it has in its database. And there may be some that don't map. So in this case, I've got 989 that aren't mapping out of 23,000. So it's not too bad. And that may be genes that, um, or transcripts that haven't been curated yet within, say, the NCBI database. And so they're not technically genes yet because they haven't been uh, identified as such, but there may be um, fragments that are still coming up in next-gen sequencing. So once you have that, it, you can click, whoops, you can click this button at the bottom that says analyze data set. You can give us some settings if you want, or you can run the default settings. And it would, may take a few minutes depending on the server load of the program, but this is what you end up getting as a summary. So, whoops. So it's come through and done, looked at the top canonical pathways, the top regulators, the top disease and, and biological functions, as well as you can look at toxicology. Um, and if you put in your own networks and own lists, it can relate your lists and pathways to the one that you've put in. So say um, you're looking at a new signaling that you've discovered and there's no curated sets for that particular pathway and you want to make your own, you can do that and then compare your um, analysis, that you, your data from your next-gen sequencing or gene expression analysis to that list that you've manually curated. So I just want to go through some examples of the things that it can show you. So for example, this is just another view of the summary page. If you drop down all of those menus. So in, in um, this data set, it's identified several canonical pathways. So here you can see that some of the, these are some of the pathways that are um, upregulate, are differentially expressed. Oops, sorry. 
as well as um, some genes that may be regulating those pathways. So it looks at all of the different pathways and identifies things that may be controlling that. And then, um, in addition, it can look at different diseases and different disorders and tell you um, how many genes are differentially expressed that are associated with those different disorders or those cellular functions, which you can see down the bottom. And it can also give you these mind map type pictures. So if you click on any of those canonical pathways, for example, it can show you how the different canonical pathways are linked together um, in different um, different functions that you've pulled up. Um, and it can also do this for the genes and how the genes interact with each other. Um, so this is a view of the upstream analysis that it can do. So for my um, samples, for example, it's saying that TNF is activating. Um, it's a cytokine, obviously. And these are the sort of um, target molecules that may be activated and what it's basing that decision on. So you can click TNF alpha and look at the view of what it's repressing or activating um, with different colors. And um, I'm, I'm not showing it to you, but um, you can also annotate all of those different mechanistic network diagrams. So to make it look however you like, change the colors, it has a really nice pathway builder built into it. Um, so you can use that for publications, um, which a lot of people do. Um, so the other thing that it can look at is the disease and functions. And so here, um, it's got the different categories of the different functions, um, and you'll, for example, here it's saying that um, the, the disease or the function is cell movement of tumor groups, and it's um, activated, and these are the different genes that are overexpressed that are making it call that category. Now, one thing to remember, and it's w well illustrated here, is that Ingenuity doesn't do exclusive analyses. So, for multiple categories for so cell movement of tumor lines is very similar to migration of tumor lines, not all, not completely identical, but similar. So you'll notice that very a lot of these genes are coming up at this over and over again in multiple different categories that are very similar to each other. And so that's something that you have to keep in mind um, when you're using these results for your next experiments is that, um, you know, it could be cell movement, it could be migration because you really have the same factors driving that. So Ingenuity, uh, this is just a very surface look at what Ingenuity can do. It has an incredible, uh, powerful engine behind it and there's a lot of things you can do with it from analyzing RNA sequencing experiments from scratch to doing this sort of data analysis. Um, it actually has a really great support um, if you do need help, there's regular training webinars that are held, um, as well as um, which you can find at this website. And it also has a help page, which you can ac access through Ingenuity. So here, if this is your normal box, you hit this little support on this, which is arrow is pointing to, and it comes up with this support uh, page where you can look at training, you can talk in the customer forum and look at the product manual to answer any questions you may have. So the other tool that I want to just briefly talk about is David. Um, so this is uh, what it looks like online. Um, so it's the database for annotation, visualization, and integrated discovery. As I said, it's hosted by the NIH. Um, and it can do many of the same things that Ingenuity can. Um, 
and for free, but it looks a little different. So a lot of people prefer to use Ingenuity if they have access to it. But if you don't, David can do it for you as well. Um, and it's if you look down here, you can see that it's used quite a lot. It's the, the, about 800 people are using it on a daily basis. Um, there is a really great Nature Protocols paper that explains how to use David to analyze your gene list. So if you have more questions or um, need more help after this webinar, feel free to consult this, obviously. Um, but just briefly, how you enter your data, um, you click which of the tools you want to use. Um, most commonly, you want to use this functional annotation tool. Um, but you could also look at the gene classification. It also has a great tool to convert your gene IDs. So say, for example, you, all you have is the names of your genes and you want the Uniprot numbers or you want a certain database accession number because that's all it will take. You'll be able to put in your gene IDs and output a whole bunch of other ones. So it's a really great tool that's kind of hidden into this interface that can become very useful if you need to do certain things. Um, so. Once you click that button, you insert a list here. So an important difference between this and Ingenuity is you're not looking at expression analysis per se. So here you want a list of, say, you know, your top genes that are overexpressed with a full change of more than two that are statistically significant versus, uh, in one sample versus another. You don't get to put in your individual expression values in David. So here you already want to have a list that you know is overexpression of all of these things in one sample versus another, or down regulation, whatever it is you want to look at. Um, you can pick what species it is to try and reduce some background, pick what, what, what the identifier is, whether you're using gene IDs or a certain um, microarray ID, um, and then obviously you've got a gene list and you can submit your list. And once you submit your list, you can analyze it with any of these different tools. So. As I mentioned, the most common one is this functional annotation tool. And once you do that, you get a summary, very similar to what you do with Ingenuity. And it gives you different disease that might be associated with the gene set that you put in, functional categories, gene ontology, um, and lots of other things, pathways, protein domains. So here is um, an example of some of the gene ontology. So gene ontology is a system in which um, biologists came together and realized they needed to have terms for different pathways, and so they created this unified system called gene ontology, which is what David is based on. So here, for example, um, this is gene ontology for fat um, and for different types of fat, and there's different categories, and this is all the categories combined here. So if you click on one of these or click on the chart, it comes up with all the different, so this is for the go term BP fat, and comes up with all of the different cellular functions that are coming under that category that have a number of genes in them, and then you've got your um, statistical significance based on the clustering of those, um, those genes. And like Ingenuity, you can click on any of these terms and find out what the different genes associated with that term is. And again, it's not mutually exclusive, so a lot of the terms in one may come up in the one underneath it. So you really have to be cognizant that you may have significant overlap in the number of genes that are coming up in those functions. So you can then say, oh, I'm really interested in this, this fat phenotype potentially, so what are the top genes that I want to look at? Are they implicated in my tumor? Is there evidence to look at it? 
and then follow through with any downstream analysis from that. So there are some very important take-homes and important things to remember when doing any of this kind of analysis. One, I hope that I've convinced you that your sample is a snapshot of that tumor or tissue at that point of time. It can contain a lot of heterogeneity, especially if you're working with clinical samples. So please remember to consider how you're sampling it. Um, your sample quality dictates the quality of your downstream applications. So treat your samples well. Make sure um, you're not degrading them as you're using them. And you really need to consider that what, what, you're, what are you trying to answer with your experiment? Um, and is sequencing the correct way of doing it? Are you looking at global analysis where you really want to match ex everything that's going on? Are you, or are you really just interested in what a potential pathway might be doing or a particular um, fe disease phenotype that may be well suited to a PCR array format? Um, and when it comes to data analysis, you have free and paid options um, that will help you identify some biological trends in your data. But most importantly, anything that you see in this analysis, especially this bioinformatic analysis, may not imply biological significance. For everything that you do, you need to follow this up with your rigorous experimental testing to confirm or deny any hypothesis you could gather. Um, and especially for RNA sequencing experiments, um, you can get a lot of false positives in, or false negatives in the, the RNA-seq workflow. So it's really important that you follow that up with real-time PCR expression analysis, which is considered more of a gold standard and a well-controlled real-time PCR, which you can look up a lot of articles on bite-sized bios to how to really make a good real-time PCR setup um, very robust. Um, and so with that, um, I'd like to hand it over to Abhishek, um, who has a few more words, and I'd like to thank everyone for giving me the opportunity to, to talk a little bit about what I do and, and some technical aspects that you should consider. Yeah, thank you, Anya. I think that was really nice presentation. And before we uh, move to the question and answer session with her, uh, I just quickly wanted to, to bring forward a few um, of the information from Kaijin for you. So if we move to the next slide, uh, I guess that, that Anya already showed you in the beginning like a proper workflow depending on if you're starting with DNA and RNA. And what I wanted to quickly show you here is that uh, the different products and different tools that you can use from Kaijin depending on your needs, uh, whether you're starting with a PCR-based genotyping or NGS-based genotyping or qPCR. So depending on your needs, you have uh, everything available from sample purification, uh, going to pre-amplification assays and setting up the assays, till the analysis and data interpretation. And uh, she already spoke about the spin column methods for, for a high-quality sample purification. Uh, she, she spoke about the library preparation, which, uh, which are available from Kaijin as well. She already spoke about the uh, ingenuity uh, uh, very, uh, uh, pathway tool as well as the uh, ingenuity variation analysis tool. So. Uh, these are some of the some of these solutions that that we provide you. If you want to look into the details of the different uh, kits for your specific needs, because I guess that's that's what Anya also mentioned is very important, and that's a common mistake sometimes people do. Uh, so Anya, if we move to the next slide, thank you. Uh, you can go on this specific uh, genotyping page, and uh, there we have three sections that you can choose from 
One is the uh, NGS uh, tools for genotyping studies. The second one is the PCR-based genotyping when you're looking uh, just for the genetic variations and the qPCR genotyping uh, when you're specifically want to quantify some DNA targets. So you can go and look at the, the workflows there and look at your specific needs. Uh, and if you have any further questions, you can always reach out to, to our technical support or you can reach out to me as well via an email. Uh, and uh, before I hand it over for the question and answer, I also wanted to show you one of uh, an interest. Uh, if we move to the next slide, please. Uh, yeah, this is uh, one of the blogs that we have recently started from Kaijin. It's uh, it's uh, it's called the Biomarker Insights. So if you type on Google, you'll be able to reach to that. Uh, the aim of this blog is that we want to provide as much as educational content that we can provide to our uh, existing customers or anyone who's in the academia world. So you can go there. You can find out different categories depending on whether you're doing uh, you, you're doing an NGS-based study or you're doing a PCR-based study. So I would really uh, recommend, and you can find the different uh, content there related to whether you want to attend a webinar or want to see some videos and download some different resources. You can you can find all the information there as well. Uh, well, that's that's in a nutshell. I wanted to 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 talk about like to to make sure that you can understand how we work hand in hand with the with the workflow of our academic researchers and if you have more questions you can uh, feel free to ask uh, with that I'll, I'll hand it over back to Amanda thank you Abhishek and thank you Anya that was an excellent presentation we have a few questions from the audience if anyone else has a question please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen so our first question is from I apologize for mispronouncing your name Abdullah um, and they ask how can I decide how many sample repeats I have to do in a sequence analysis? So that's a really great question, and um, it really depends on what you're looking at. Um, I think the standard, uh, and, and it depends on uh, the sequencing platform that you're using. Um, some of them recommend uh, up to 10 to 20-fold uh, representation of the genome, whereas um, others have, can be lower because of the technology that they're using. So it depends on the platform that you're using and the kind of sequencing technology. Um, but it, again, it, if you're just looking for broad gene expression analysis um, and you've been able to deplete a lot of your ribosomal RNA because you don't want that to confound your results, then you could go lower. But if you're looking for something that's incredibly rare, for example, if you want a deeper insight um, or if you're looking at um, codings and non-coding sequences, microRNAs, um, non-coding RNAs that may be less abundant, then you want to increase the number of um, times you read the genome. So increase um, up to 50 times or 100 times. A lot of, um, a lot of the tumor studies, for example, have a very high um, uh, genome count because they really want to take in every single thing that's happening and they don't want to miss anything and they're looking at very fragmented samples. So that's why you could go up to a higher amount. But take into account that this may be more expensive, you may need a, a, um, a different library prep and you, it will take more time on the sequencing machine to be able to process that data um, and to be able to even to, to get those reads. So it, it really is what you're looking for and, and sort of the limitations that you may be working with to be able to get it. Okay, and then I have a question that I'm not sure if you'll know the answer to. It's from um, 
Vishwas, and they ask, um, can these techniques like David be also used for things like enzymes? So they can. Um, enzymes is part of the class within um, the RNA, the, the workflow, and so you can use it for anything that you want. Um, you could put in a whole bunch of enzymes and see what pathways come out of them, um, but if you're looking at, there is other tools that are more suited to protein-based results versus RNA-based results or, or sort of genomic-based results. Um, and it's, it's out of the scope, but if you Google it, you'll find that there is quite a lot of different databases which could give you a little bit more based on protein if, that's, if you're looking more for that sort of um, analysis. But yes, absolutely, Ingenuity and David can all, if you put in an enzyme list, you could try and get um, what sort of enzymes, and for ingenuity, you could even do toxicology analysis where you could see what drugs may be targeting your specific enzymes, which could be useful depending on what you're doing. Yeah, that actually sounds pretty cool. Um, and we've got another question, this time from um, Tamara, who asks if um, there's a certain limit up to which you'd want to amplify your sample due to the increasing risk of um, mutations. Uh, so. I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, we were very concerned about the fidelity of our enzymes, and absolutely you can get uh, nonspecific mutations that are caused from the sequencing reaction. However, our polymerases have advanced to such a point where the mutation rate is incredibly low. Um, so while yes, of course, you can get mutations during um, the technical aspect of preparing your samples, um, it's generally not something that a lot of people are concerned about. Um, and if you're doing something very specific where you're looking for individual mutations, most people would follow it up with multiple different primer sets for Sanger sequencing, where you can really identify whether you've identified an, an actual mutation or you, what you're doing is just looking at an artifact of the technical process. Okay. And then um, we have a question about what is the difference between um, Ingenuity and David? Great question. So um, David is a public database, obviously, and for that reason, it's mined from all the different databases that could exist online. So things like PubMed, Swissprot, Uniprot, all of those different databases, some of which are curated, so they have someone that checks the, the entries um, and makes sure that they're right. Some of them are just mined using computer programs to s scoop up all of that information. The big difference between Ingenuity is that it's individually curated by scientists in-house. So every single connection, whether or not gene A interacts with gene B, whether it's part of this functional group, is decided upon by a scientist and they need to follow this very rigorous process as to whether or not it will actually fit into that category or not. Um, and so you can so it's a little bit more um, could, it could be more specific based on what you're looking for because you do have that individual curation point um, and it may be more biologically relevant, but it might not be. So it's, it's just an, an added um, level of security that you could use. Okay. And then um, Hina asks, is there any method to check the quality of cDNA before analysis? So. Uh, that's a hard question. I do think that the qubit can do cDNA. Um, I'm not sure how good it is. Uh, most people don't, 
um, because they just assume that what you've put in at the RNA stage is okay for cDNA. Um, it is very difficult to check the quality of cDNA. So I think my best recommendation, apart from if you have a good technique that will be able to do it, I, I honestly don't know if there is any good ones, um, is to just make sure that you have the best RNA going in. Okay. And then we have a question from um, Abdullah again, asking about mass spec. So they say that you mentioned mass spec in your presentation. And so can you give some more explanation about the usage of mass spec in cancer analysis? Absolutely. So there's been um, a little bit of work done now where they people are looking at um, what the different protein expression might be within a tumor. And so you can um, enzymatically digest your tumor to the protease level and just run it through mass spec like you normally would and see what what protein species might be overrepresented in your tumor. Um, and you could also use other methods like ELISAs and, and other protein capture methods, which is actually done by the TCGA. They do have some proteomic da yeah. data um, as part of, of their analysis for some of the tumor types. Um, so you could also get both DNA and protein information from, from some of their they're already existing databases. So that is something that some people are branching into because um, as we all know, just because it's overexpressed on the genetic level or genomic level does not mean that it has a, an increase in protein level and a functional output. It could just be the DNA is being increased for whatever reason and it has no functional output. So, oh, next, I, we have a question that I think a lot of people might have. So let's say you've done your experiment and you have hundreds or maybe thousands of differential differentially expressed genes. Where do you start? So I think it is a very common problem, and I think everyone, especially people who do RNA-6 experiments, um, have this issue. And I think uh, the first thing that you want to do is do a quality check in terms of your results. So say you've got two samples and you know that this particular gene or subset of genes should be differentially expressed. So the first thing you want to do is just make sure that they really are, to make sure that what the changes you're seeing are actually representative of the sample rather than something that has gone wrong, wrong in the technical process. Are you real, is your data really representing what you should see in those samples and therefore is the other changes that you see things that you should follow up on? So once you've done that and you've confirmed that your sample is, your, your results is representative of your sample, you can then go on and do some of these pathway analysis tools to see what things may be popping up, what pathways may be differentially expressed, um, and then confirm that with the literature, you know, is that, has that been seen before? It, may it be interesting? Could it be interacting with another factor that we know is really important in this pathway or this, this disease? Mm -hmm. um, and go from there. Um, but obviously, it's part of research where, um, you know, we don't know what we don't know, and, and the whole point of research is to identify this new information. So um, especially a lot of this genomics data can lead you down a lot of wrong avenues because you don't know if it's going to be correct, but it can also lead you down some really interesting um, analyses. So um, I think that is the best way to tackle that issue of, of having a lot of data and you could definitely try and prioritize how you're going to deal with that issue before you even start your experiment. So, you know, I'm going to look at all of these genes, see if they're overexpressed or downregulated or whatever it is, and then I'm going to put it through this pipeline, and if this comes out, this is what I'll do. Um, and so that's a really great way of um, planning your experiment. Well, that's fantastic. That's a question that I know that a lot of people have had when I've worked in the lab. Well, me. 
It looks, okay, we've got one final question from Priyanka, and they ask, which would you recommend to do a pathway analysis, RNA-seq data or transcriptome data, and why? So I think both of them will give you the results that you're looking for, um, and it really depends on what you're trying to capture. So for example, say I was looking at um, a specific sample, and you know, it could be a cell culture sample uh, from a, a cell line. Um, and in that cell line, you're not really expecting a huge ton of global changes because it doesn't have the increased variability that you would see in a tumor sample. So in that case, I would probably go towards the, the, the sort of gene expression analysis that's not sequencing because you're not expecting to see the huge amount of changes that you may see in a, in a tumor phenotype. Um, whereas with a tumor, you may need to do sequencing to be able to see more insight because you really don't know what you're looking for. So I think um, either one, whether it's ingenuity, or whether it's uh, RNA sequencing or um, any sort of transcriptic analysis, you will be able to use these tools. Um, and it, the, really the only difference between the two and, and using David or ingenuity or, or GCR is how you input the data because the data just looks a little different at the beginning, but at the end they all look exactly the same. So it, it really doesn't matter what analysis, uh, what the experiment you do to be able to use these analytical tools. Oh, that's really convenient. Yeah, that's helpful too. Well, that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thank you again, Anya, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. Thank and you. thanks also to our sponsor, Kyogen. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in BiteSizeBio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Kyogen and BiteSizeBio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 